Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupașcu, one of the hosts for the New Books in East Asian Studies channel. Today, we are here with Dr. Jack Chen, Associate Professor of Chinese Literature at University of Virginia. Hello, Dr. Chen, and welcome to our channel. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lupașcu. I'm happy to be here. And uh, thank you for agreeing to to talk to us about your new book, Anecdote Network Gossip Performance, Essays on the Shishuo Sinyu, published by Harvard University Asia Center in the Harvard Yenching Institute monograph series in 2021. Um, I will just start, you know, by by asking um, about your work and, you know, your your larger uh, projects and, you know, just to get to know you and your work better. So I was wondering... um, you know, what got you interested in uh, in writing about Shishuo Xinyu and its multifarious environments and nuances? Um, you know, how did you come to this project? And, you know, details like this for the beginning. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, I guess to back up a little bit, I, I, I was not a Chinese uh, major as an undergraduate. I, I studied literature, which was a special major um, that was really geared towards literary theory. Um, and when I got to graduate school, I continued as in comparative literature. And so some of my first classes on Chinese literature were actually taken as a master's student. I was in the PhD program, but, you know, that's, I got my master's at Michigan and I went on to get my PhD at Harvard. But I was really green and I really didn't know that much. And I remember coming, you know, in a class taught by uh, Professor Shenfu Lin um, at Michigan um, on sort of basically an introduction to Chinese literature. I was struck by just how weird this text was. I never really read anything like this before. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that really struck me again, and this is something that I discussed in the book, is just the title itself and trying to make sense of what the title was, how it related, you know, the translation, of course, by the famous translation by Richard Mather, to whom I'm immensely grateful, um, uh, you know, for his uh, enormous body of work and and what he's done for the field. Um, but uh, just trying to figure out how that mapped onto the Chinese, Shishu Xinyu, and not really getting a sense of this. Of course, at that time, I really didn't have classical Chinese. And so I was really, you know, Michigan is, I'm grateful to them as well for um, allowing me to be in the field, for giving me the opportunity to learn uh, Chinese, uh, both classical and modern. But um that was kind of like the early little bit that, you know, was always in the back of my mind. Um, you know, I went on and I did work uh, on other things, including um, uh, Tang Taizong. Uh, so that was my first book. Um, and I was interested in poetry and I kind of forgot about the Shishu Xinyu. Um, but after that first book, you know, and I was at UCLA at the time um, in my first, in a second tenure track job. And I was really interested in gossip. Um, and so one of the projects that I did there was this edited volume, um, Gossip and Anecdote in Traditional China with uh, David Skaberg, my co-editor. And um, and I'd just been doing little bits and pieces around the Shishu Xinyu, and I just kept coming back to it. And I was always interested in gossip and how gossip worked. And I think, you know, you know, being in our field, of course, academics love gossip. And, you know, and it really was the sense of um, uh, thinking about both, you know, ways in which gossip and communities work, um, you know, small communities like academia, and especially like, you know, Chinese studies, which is a fairly small community compared to, say, English, um, and uh, what gossip allows you to um, to know about things and how to then sort of navigate your way through these communities. Um, so that edited volume, you know, was really useful for me um, in terms of 
getting a sense of, okay, this is something that, you know, I feel like hasn't been worked on in our field and, and it could be something really interesting. And, you know, and I was, I always like working with other people. So that was fun. Um, you know, getting a bunch of people together at a conference and sort of talking about things. Um, but then uh, I kind of w- made it like a weird right turn into um, digital humanities. And there was an opportunity to do work on social network analysis. Uh, my uh, colleague there, um, Tim Tangerlini, who's now at Berkeley, but he was at the time uh, working in Scandinavian literature and Korean sort of uh, uh, Scandinavian, I'd say folklore and Korean folklore. He, he always joked and said that he worked on peninsular studies. Um, and uh, and he organized like this uh, NEH seminar for two weeks, uh, where he brought in people from Google and Facebook and you know all sorts of interesting companies to talk about you know uh, visualization, social network analysis. And he trained us uh, people who um, are now working in the field, like Javier Cha and um, and Ian Miller, um, who are working you know very much in DH. Um, and that was my first taste of it. And so um, I thought, oh, this is something I can do with the Shishosh Junior because, again, you know, it's a, it's like academia. It's a small, you know, elite community um, where everyone kind of knows each other. And um, and you can think about ways in which people connect, you know, either through lineages or through friendship networks. Um, and so I, I started, uh, you know, thinking about uh, visualizing the Shishosh as a network. Um, and that again, I, I, you know, I had gotten tenure at the point and I thought, oh, you know, having tenure means I can like go and explore things. Um, and you know, what I should have been thinking about was writing my second book, but instead, um, you know, after I did this article on Shishoshinu and network analysis, I then decided I was going to learn about topic modeling. So I, I spent, I don't know, like three years trying to figure out topic modeling. And I realized at the end of that, that's actually not what I want to do with my life. And so, um, I feel like there's like a, there's a period of like wilderness, like, and I think, Associate professors will sort of sympathize with this. It, you know, being an associate professor means that you are now newly uh, sort of empowered to take on all sorts of administrative tasks. You have the security of tenure. Um, you can sort of explore intellectual, you know, angles that you probably wouldn't allow yourself to do when you were still thinking about how to get that first book out. Um, and you know that there's, I was paralyzed in a certain way. I couldn't decide between two different projects. Uh, one project was on ghost poetry, thinking about ghosts that write poetry in China, and the other one was the Shishou project. And um, that period of indecisiveness came to an end, um, and uh, by uh, an invitation that came out of the blue by Kay Duffy, who was a graduate student at Princeton at the time, and now she's at UBC. Um, and she invited me to come and give a little uh, workshop on Shishou Xinyu uh, to uh, other graduate students at Princeton. And at the, after doing that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. I really, and I, and I, you know, there are very few moments where you think, oh, this text is fun to work with. And it's not like a struggle. It's actually, it's intellectually stimulating. It doesn't sort of, it has enough resistance that, you know, that it's, it's challenging enough that it maintains your interest. So anyway. Long story, I know, and I've been talking a lot, but um, but I'm so grateful to Kay Duffy. I'm so grateful to so many people. You know, I, I think about like the the sort of my own sort of the people who have done things for me, right? Um, who have taught me things, um, and so uh, that period of indecisiveness of, of sort of associate professor paralysis came to an end. Um, from Kay Duffy, I, you know, again, um, and so I'm so grateful to her. I'm so happy for her that she's at UBC and, uh, and it was so much fun working with her and the graduate students at Princeton. Um, 
And of course, I was also doing little reading groups with my students at UCLA at the time. Um, and I'm grateful to them as well, because again, they maintain that interest uh, for me for um, working with the Shishro. Um, mm-hmm. So after I came to Virginia, I realized I needed to get a second book done. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I had like, so far I had accumulated all these like little bits of like chapters of things, you know, in my course of sort of like wandering around thinking about different projects. And I realized that this was almost a book. Um, and so that's uh, where we are now. Uh, I, you know, I, I figured out how to stitch together all these little, like half abandoned projects and half published pieces. Things, you know, like are like fifteen pages here, twenty pages there. Um, and you know, it wasn't more than I think twenty percent of the book in the end. So that was grateful for that that I didn't <laughs> overpublish. But um, but it was enough for me to actually have enough momentum going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, the story itself, it's, um, it's really fascinating. And, you know, it, it actually speaks to, to write the network that that you have, the networks you created, while, you know, pursuing these, these projects or this rediscovering them. Right. And, um, you know, it amounted to to a book with six chapters, the introduction and conclusions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So and, you know, it, it, um, just to, to add to, to your description of the book, it offers a very intricate and um, I would say really amazingly rich account of Shishua uh, Xinyu and the ways in which the anecdotes uh, you know, as a genre uh, are instrumental in articulating and influencing what you call on page nine, and I will cite here, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm correct, um, uh, two interrelated literary projects, um, the discursive imagination of a particular cultural community, and the second, the narrative rehearsal and exemplification of particular cultural arguments, end of quote. And here I was really excited to know more about your take on the epistemological construction of the concept of the anecdote. And also the ways in which it crosses through and knits together the chapters in Shishua Sinyu. And then, you know, if we extract it further uh, in your book. Yeah, thank you. Um, so um, before I begin on that, mm-hmm. I, I should just let people know, you know, if you're not familiar with the Shishua Sinyu, it's um, in its present form, at least. Uh, it's, it's composed of 36 chapters. Um, these chapters are titled. Um, so they're, each chapter represents a topic. Um, and, you know, the topics are really odd in some ways, you know, some of them are very, you know, straightforwardly, like almost Confucian topics, right? Like the first one does Xing, which is, you know, on sort of virtuous conduct. Um, on, um, and then it moves to things like near the end, much more sort of miscellaneous on things like insults and, um, and uh, enmity and things like that. So, um, so there's a kind of an interesting kind of way in which it categorizes uh, behavior and, and, um, and, character traits. Uh, and so uh, that's useful to know, partly because, uh, you know, your question about, you know, what anecdote does, you know, these anecdotes are all categorized under these larger categories. Um, and I was interested, you know, thinking about how um, these, uh, and again, this goes back to sort of my initial confusion back as a graduate student at Michigan, you know, wondering like, what is this thing that I'm reading? What are these like little anecdotes doing? Um, And you don't really get to understand it unless you, I I feel like it's hard to understand the entirety of what this issue is about without that larger sense of um, how it's collected these things, how it's categorized these things. But um, but anyway, to get back to your question. um, Yeah. I, I think that um, one thing anecdotes do, um, and I'm really interested in anecdotes as a form still uh, because uh, anecdotes 
you know, as they're used and deployed, um, not just in Chinese uh, literary and historical and philosophical texts, they they do these. I feel like I, I think about this as a sort of exemplification. They do these like really interesting um, moves where it takes some little moment in time and it raises it up to people's attention and says, this is what you need to know about this person, or this is what you need to know about the situation. And it serves as this kind of exemplary sort of um, moment of time that somehow crystallizes um, like a cultural nugget. And and I think, you know, part of the reason why I'm interested in anecdote is actually because I, I'm interested in lyric poetry. Um, and I think lyric poetry does similar things. Um, you know, lyric poetry, um, you know, and, you know, we uh, obviously, you know, saying lyric poetry, you know, in relationship to the Chinese lyric tradition, it is a bit of a translation and there are assumptions there. But there is, I think, in the poetic moment, a moment of stop time where where attention is drawn to a particular affect, a particular mood, um, a, a moment in time where some sort of philosophical thought is unfolding. Um, and anecdotes do that in a certain way as well. So on the one hand, you know, anecdotes then sort of take a moment in time and, and it sort of makes it exemplary um, of either character traits of, um, of actions. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting about anecdotes, um, and uh, this is kind of on the tangents of your question, but I think it sort of comes around to the larger question of the epistemological construction of, of, of what you're getting at. Um, anecdotes don't work uh, through facticity in the same way it's not empirical i feel like with anecdotes there's a, a sort of a force of, re, of kind of this rhetorical force that takes place through like a fittingness or an aptness and um uh, again thinking about people that owe things to my intellectual like sort of um uh training um david hills uh, a philosopher who was at michigan i think he's at stanford now um he gave a class on kant's um uh, third critique and thinking about Kant's aesthetics. And uh, he talked in his own work and he was working on something called aptness. Aptness is what he was really interested in. And I think the anecdote is apt. It, it works because we say, oh, that really, that really sort of matches this person. And so like, you're, you're taking, you know, say an anecdote about Sha'an and, and, you know, there's something about the anecdote that, you know, again, the anecdote is just a moment in, of time in Sha'an's life, right? And you would never want to reduce anyone's life to one particular moment. And yet the anecdote seems to convince you that it works, that, um, that this is perfectly crystallizing sort of Sha'an's entire personality in this one moment of time, in this one action he undertakes. And so that aptness is, I think, really fascinating. Um, and again, it's not the logic of empirical fact. Um, it's really something that is kind of an aestheticization, I think, of personhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sorry, uh, were you about to say something else? Uh, no, um, you know, I can, I can, I can talk about this endlessly. Um, but um, you know, I, I guess one other thing I would say is that um, uh, it's what I find again, you know. Anecdote leads you in different ways. I think, you know, you can think about like philosophy and especially in the Chinese tradition, but also in the Western tradition, how it depends on anecdote. Um, We see obviously anecdotes in Chinese philosophical texts all the time. And they're often brought forth as like this like little moment that somehow proves a point. And again, what I find fascinating about it is like, how does that prove that point, right? It's not really a logical argument necessarily. Rather, it's this kind of fittingness. It like somehow fits the moment that you need and 
so it's this rhetorical force that I find interesting. Um, I think in the West, we have things like thought experiments and um, and thought experiments, again, are like anecdotes. They're almost like these kind of aestheticizations of, of, of logic where, you know, the thought experiment, you know, someone has like thought of the thought experiment to sort of make an argument about some larger point in philosophy. And you're like, well, why does that work? You know, you've designed the thought experiment so that, you know, you, you can sort of make this point. But the thought experiment is a deployment. It's not, you know, it's not true or false. It's, it's you know, in that weird space that the anecdotes and anecdotes, you know, don't have this sort of empirical facticity to them. Um, rather, they convince us because they seem to fit the moment. Um, and again, historiography obviously does this as well. Like we read through the Nazic histories, right? The biographies are often, you know, anecdote after anecdote after you get through the framing stuff. Um, and, um, and uh, you know, one of the things that I think about in, in reading through Shishra and its relationship to historical texts that draw on the Shishra are how those anecdotes get reframed um, as parts of, different kinds of cultural arguments about the meaning of somebody's life. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And so I guess I would say that, you know, like philosophy does it, you know, it uses the anecdote. It, it claims that, you know, we're going to get to some kind of truth right through the anecdote. Um, historiography does this and it, and it deploys it as fact. Um, but again, you know, you know, within the logic of the anecdote itself, it's neither true nor false. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's just somehow apt. And the aptness is what I, I find really, really cool. It is very cool. I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, and, you know, it makes kind of, um, it makes it clear in relates to, to my next question in a way of, you know, your, about your choice of, um, you know, providing a literary rather than a historical reading of, of the Shishua. And um, here, you know, the, the, the um, the uh, enumeration um, that I found on page 14, for example, uh, you know, the heroic officials and treacherous ministers and sagely recluses and, you know, all these all these types that we, we read about in the Shishua, um, right, to um, see them from a, a rather literary perspective, not historical, uh, speaks back, right, to, to what you just mentioned about the aptness of the anecdote and the fact that it, it fits into a certain, right, uh, worldview. Uh, and um, here, you know, I, I just wanted to to invite you to talk a little bit more about the methodology and the methodological productivity of the literary reading, as opposed to to the historical approach. Um, you know, just in large terms, if you will. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and and yeah, and and yeah, that that sort of works nicely with what I was just saying. Uh, the the um, I'm you know, I'm not interested. You know, I guess uh, at all. I mean, <laughs> so I. I to back up again, our field is so is so historicist in how it approaches literary texts, um, and uh, and of course it's important to ground things um, in a historical context because it those are the, it's like the grammar of what you can say about something, um, you know it is to some extent determined by what's allowable within that historical context. If you want to be faithful to the historical context and if you want to do a virtuosic reading and sort of break out of the historical context, I don't think that would be necessary. That would be really intelligible in our field. I think it's intelligible. That kind of move is intelligible in, in, in like English, uh, you know, where you have these kinds of really virtuosic moments um, where you break out of the historical frame um, and, and you discard it as, as, you know, that's just one possible parameter. For us, I think that we we do sort of hold to this very we hold very you know strongly to this historical frame, and so um, 
I don't want that though to dominate what the Shishra is about. I think that, you know, we need to have that sense. Okay. So, you know, what, is being said in a particular anecdote has to make sense within its particular historical context. But I don't actually think that it matters whether or not what happens in the anecdote actually happened in historical reality. And so I think this is that slippage that I, I think I see in a lot of scholarship on Shishra, uh, especially in, in um, say, uh, Chinese language scholarship that tries to find uh, evidence for uh, philosophical debates within the Shishra uh, and, and mines it as a sort of source, a, re- way, a way to sort of reflect this, the philosophical intellectual trends of the time. And and that to me is not that interesting. Um, I you know, read that scholarship. I, I get a lot out of it, um, but that's not what I'm interested in personally. So, so yeah, I think, you know, and when I, when I say it's literary, it's partly a deflective maneuver. You know, I want to make sure that people who are reading this aren't going to be like, well, you know, in this period, you know, this, this anger probably, you know, this particular story probably didn't actually happen given what we know about this. And, you know, for me, yet yeah, that's, you know, that's interesting. Um, and it's interesting when something like that, you know, is, is, is sort of folklore sort of pops up through the Shishra stuff that, you know, didn't necessarily happen in real life. Um, but um, that's again not the logic that I'm interested in. I'm actually interested in the logic of well, you know, we have this kind of configuration of persons um, that you know may not have actually ever had this conversation. And one thing you see again throughout the text, if you read through and follow the anecdotes, um, and is is sort of repetitions of the same situation using different characters or different persons. And so um, and so that I think you know that brings us into a more of a literary move because you know you're thinking about uh the repetitions of text uh the representation uh, rep- repetitions of narrative and you're thinking about well does that second repetition change the situation does it have a new meaning does it accrue something more you know once we've seen the first instance of a particular situation and we see its repetition often in that and i think about these as families of anecdotes um and, and family anecdote is something that i use in the, in in my analysis um, you know, whether it's looking at one particular figure um, who um, uh, who has a cluster of anecdotes all in the same sort of chapter, or if it's across different chapters, um, but it's the same situation, and you can kind of see, oh, there's this weird genetic kind of link between these anecdotes. Um, and as the anecdotes unfold, you can kind of see an argument unfolding because the situation does change every time there's this, this sort of like this reinstantiation. Um, so yeah, I think you know, looking at this not as historical reality, not as as reflecting you know intellectual trends, but thinking about this rather as how narratives are built um, is how I've been thinking about it. Yeah, that's great, and you know, it, it does bring out a lot of fascinating details about uh, the show, as we will see when we go through the chapters. Um, and you know, just I think uh, my next question is a little bit in you know contrast to to the previous one, but you know, I just wanted to get into into the chapters. So yeah. the first one, right, a textual history of the Shishua Sinyu offers exactly what it names. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't think there's any need for me to contextualize the question. So <laughs> I'll just, you know, invite you to tell us uh, about the text life and, you know, your translation work here, very, very important, and the work it, it portrays, you know, and all the, the role that um, the concept of um, of movement, of mouvance, uh, played mm-hmm. in this in this case. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, you notice probably that I begin this with a caveat lecture, and I say that basically, um, you know, if you're not interested in this, skip this chapter. This chapter, you know, is something that you don't need to read through because uh, I, and this is something that was so. Both my editor and my my wife uh, Natasha Heller, who you know Chinese Buddhism, you know her, her after you know I I tried not to make her read a lot of my stuff because you know she's probably sick of it, but I but you know I said you know, I'm going to be in this chapter and I spent I like this whole summer working on this chapter. This chapter it was really hard to 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 get through. Um, and she's like, oh, my God, you cannot begin with this chapter. This chapter is going to kill everybody. You know, you need to begin with something interesting. This chapter is not what you want to start with. And I kept thinking, oh, you know, part of me is thinking, like, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to have this kind of, like, difficult first chapter that everyone has to get through before you get to the fun stuff? Of course, that's nuts. No, no one would want to do that. That's, like, how you, like, get rid of your audience. But um, but I did feel like it was necessary. Um, and I want to mention, you know, my wonderful editor, um, you know, who – uh, uh, Kristen Wanner, who you know, read through it. She's like, you know, maybe this could be like a um, uh, an appendix, <laughs> like put at the end. Yeah. And I was like, you know, yeah, I I understand completely what you're saying, um, and mm-hmm. I sympathize. Um, but I actually kind of think we need to get through this before we can get to the other stuff. Yeah. Um. So again, you know, so so much I feel like of what I do is kind of up a but apotropaic, um, it's like warding off like, you know, certain kinds of criticism because I, I know that, you know, um, my, my, you know, my dream is to, um, you know, not be, uh, the typical kind of pre-modern sinologist that is purely historicist that always grounds things back. And, and I, I would love to do the kinds of like things that, you know, can be done in compliment or in English. Um, but, you know, I don't know that again, as a field that those are necessarily intelligible movies, especially in my period. Um, so I'm always conscious of that when I write. And um, I know that every period, every, you know, like early China has its own sort of like, you have to be conscious of X, Y, and Z, you know, and I think, you know, you have to be sort of conscious of X, Y, and Z in late imperial, you know, uh, sort of traditions. And so for my period, I think I have to be conscious of certain kinds of like, you know, what are intelligible moves that one can make in criticism. And so, I thought, okay, I'm going to do this first because um, the object that I'm talking about is not actually well defined. You know, what do we mean when we talk about shisho shinyu as a textual object? And so, you know, I felt like by doing this, I could free myself in later chapters to do things that are much more um, uh, sort of um, philosophical or um, or cultural critical um but I, I need to get this done first just because I, I wasn't entirely sure I knew what the object was. And it's kind of a nagging question for me, um, you know, having read through. And, and uh, this is, you know, this this kind of work has been done before. Um, uh, I don't think it's been done. I, I'm pretty sure it hasn't been done. At least I haven't seen it done to the extent that I, I tried to do it um, in, in English. Um, and, and there's been work done in Chinese and in Japanese. But again, it's not, I don't think at this level. And and I also don't think it, it brings in the kinds of um, work that's been done in new new medievalism, um, which is something that I was really conscious of. And when you bring up mouvance, you know, that's kind of what I'm thinking about at the end. Um and so, and so, yeah, um, I felt like I need to do it. Um, I, I don't want to summarize this chapter. Um, I just wanted to say that um, it gave me a feeling of sense certainty um, regarding the kind of arguments that I knew I needed, I was, I wanted to make later on. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyway, so there's that. And I think, you know, and what you'll see, you know, when you read through it is that, you know, there are large tracts of translation. Um, and I, and again, I, 
I, I always like to show my work. I, I like to sort of provide the opportunity for people to disagree with my translations. Um, I think it's important for people to see that work and have access to it, um, to be able to check and see how I've done the translation. And so, um, and so, you know, even if I get things wrong, um, I, I want at least people to see, you know, how they can get it right. Um, you know, um, so we can sort of compare it. Um, that said, the other thing about mouvance, and I just want to sort of say something very brief about that, um, is that um, I, this was something that I started, you know, thinking about, like, the kind of work that's being done in, in new medievalism, but also in Shakespearean studies, um, this kind of move towards a new materialism or materialist readings of Shakespeare. Um, I started seeing that when I was a grad student, and I remember... Um, I was taking a class with Stanley Cavell, uh, and he's the weird philosopher, right? Um, he's uh, the late Stanley Cavell, uh, but he taught a class on Shakespeare and philosophy. And one of the things he um, was interested in, in, and he's been interested in, you know, he was interested in throughout his whole career, was the issue of skepticism. And one version of skepticism is the kind of materialist um, challenge to the stability of the text. Um, and you see this definitely when you're reading across different versions of Shakespeare, because the kind of Shakespearean text that we read is an amalgam of, of different folios and other kinds of um, source texts. And it's put together by an editor. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, you know, there's this multiplicity of texts. Um, you know, how can you make an argument about a text? Because the new critical model and even deconstruction, you know, which in, I'm, and I feel, you know, in my own sort of the multiple lineages that I feel like I belong to, because, you know, we all belong to multiple lineages. But one of them was very much um, one that comes from Paul DeMond and, um, and, and goes through Barbara Johnson, Timothy Bhatti, people that I've worked with in, um, in reading Derrida and Paul DeMond with. Um, but even there, you know, as much as Derrida and Paul Deman trouble the text, you still think that there's a text. And, um, and the problem with, with what Cavell was pointing to, and then later on, um, Xiaofei Tian uh, in her book on uh, Tao Yuanming was pointing to, is that there isn't, you know, one text. You know, there's probably multiple texts, especially when we're in manuscript culture. And that multiplicity of texts um, was felt like the floor fell out from underneath me. Like I just, I felt like I didn't have anything to stand on. And so this work was important for me because even though I bracket it, I think, you know, going forward, um, you know, I say that this is what we know about the text, um, but I'm not going to come back to it in, in this way. Um, I felt it was necessary to demonstrate. Sure. Absolutely. And I totally agree with it. And I also felt happy but also destabilized at the same time right too <laughs> it was a troubling happiness <laughs> yeah and it is an exhausting chapter i mean it's exhausting to write i'm sure it's exhausting to read there's so much detail um and and i remember reading through the reviewers comments you know at some point i think i got lost in my own argument and the reviewers like i don't understand this whole set of pages and i went through it and i was like oh my gosh i don't understand this whole set of pages and so it, it is it is that kind of i mean there is so and there's so many um you know different um owners of the text you know so there, there's a yen text there's and these all these texts and you have to keep track of who is who yeah and i think i lost track at some point probably <laughs> hopefully I, I fixed it by the time this book was, was published but, um, yeah. I, I took notes when i read it. <laughs> because not just to you know uh, for the interview but you know for my own clarity i thought, okay, yeah. i don't know which one is which. <laughs> yeah yeah no 
but uh, it's it's not the it's not the your book is just it's a very complex set of uh, of you know tracking and issues yes. and everything so yeah, no. yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah and you know it's not just the text but um you know, um, the the whole uh, environment and the whole uh, exchanges, right? The entire uh, set of exchanges that, that the text points to and, um, you know, you, you describe in um, chapter two on social networks that um, it's very rich. And then, you know, you, you really have to, to pay attention and engage with, with everything, not just one part of, of um, Shishua. And... Um, here, um, you know, um, again, the chapter, like all the others, <laughs> delivers on the title. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, in other words, uh, what I want to say here is that the con- concept of social network meets data visualization in this chapter. And, um, you know, we, we learn more about person-to-person relations across the entire collection. And uh, the chapter performs a walkthrough of the said uh, visualization. And I wanted to invite you to do the same for our listeners, namely to walk us through the network with all its aesthetic and temporal elements. Um, and before you know, I, I extend that invitation, I just want to mention that the visualization itself, it's amazing. It's absolutely fascinating. So everybody just just get the book and look <laughs> and read the chapter. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you. Well, um, so uh, the, there's a lot. It's it's hard to say. So, you know, uh, this is the product of the work that I did for the NEH uh, seminar. And then I had two wonderful, uh, three wonderful collaborators at UCLA, uh, Zoe Borofsky, um, Yo Kawano, and uh, Ryan Chen, uh, who work with me uh, after the NEH seminar. Um, we created those visualizations um, and uh, using Gephi, which is the, the it's, it's, it's like to network visualization, what Macs are to PCs. It's like the pretty visualization sort of maker. Um, and you know, I know that people have different sort of, you know, aesthetic and ethical choices when they come to these kind of tools, but, you know, I always love Gephi as, as this really pretty, uh, and I like pretty sort of visualizations, but uh, the, the visualization, so the network, you know, is uh, a person to person network. Um, and so what I was trying to do, was I was trying to, uh, and, and, you know, you networks are arguments as well. They're not facts. Um, so I think that's important to foreground. Um, and so when you make choices and those choices determine what the network is going to be, um, the nodes in the network are, are persons, you know, people who appear in the Shishu Shinyu who are named. Um, and some people who are not named, like someone's mother, you know, will appear. Um, and I, I didn't include, you know, uh, just like a random attendant that appears in like in a, in a scene. I, I just love that. At a certain point, you just have to stop. Um, and the the uh, the edges, uh, the connections, um, are whether or not they are they appear in the same anecdote. Um, and so, I was making a particular kind of argument there, um, and it was one in which I was trying to simplify how one might understand social relationships. This is an argument I think I, I think I got this from Franco Moretti actually. Um, Franco Moretti was one of the people who came and talked at the NEH seminar, and he said that if two people appear in a scene, I'm going to consider them um, in a relationship. And so when he was uh, visualizing things, and one of the things he visualized actually was the homo mung. Um, um, yeah, and he didn't, and the funny thing about him is that he didn't use uh, a visualization tool like Gephi. Uh, what he did was he hand drew his networks, uh, which is just, you know, given, you know, he, as someone who is one of the sort of ancestral figures of digital humanities, it's really fascinating to think of someone still doing things by hand. Um, 
Yeah, so, uh, but he made these really beautiful networks by hand. Um, and I, I, I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, but, uh, so the network is person to person. Um, and, and, uh, what I ended up seeing is as the overall pattern was, uh, kind of a restoration of the historicity of the network, right? So, um, so if you move through the network, you know, you have like clusters as you're moving through. It really goes from the Eastern Han all the way to the end of the Jin Dynasty. Um, and it becomes much more complicated, obviously, as we get closer to the end of the Dynasty, because more of the chapters and the anecdotes really deal with that sort of high period of the Jin Dynasty, the Wang Dao period or the Xia'an period, Wanwen period. Um, and, and then it trails off again as we see the Jin Dynasty kind of just disintegrate. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know how much I can summarize about the network, but that is how the logic was laid out. Um, and then one of the other things I do, um, which uh, is new for the book um, because the networks were first published in early medieval China. And I want to thank um, uh, J. Michael Farmer for his support for that. Um, and so that was, that was done in like a 2013, 20 something. I can't remember. It was a little while back. And so, um, and so uh, yes. And so I, you know, I wanted to sort of revisit that to rethink this um, and the the historicity of that you know is something that i talk about you know because this is much more not about the literary aspect of the network or the literary aspect of the anecdotes but really about the historical structure that kind of comes back um, when you visualize it this way because you know people who are in the same period will have more connections with one another so you're just restoring that logic um but the walk through the network is the literary thing and i want to do this kind of six degrees of separation uh sort of thing uh and um that's actually going to be my AAS talk uh, this this year um, uh, on Monday. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about that that part of the network, the walk that I do. Um, but I wanted to sort of I wanted to bring us through the network, and the walk through the network is you know I was trying to figure out how I can get from the very first anecdote, anecdote one point one in the Shisho, all the way to um, the very last anecdote, which is I think like thirty six point eight, maybe I can't remember what the how many anecdotes are in that last chapter, but I wanted to go from the first anecdote to the last anecdote. And I was trying to figure out how can I do that? So, you know, you just, it's kind of becomes a fun game where you're like, okay, this person talks to that person. So that's one connection. And I was trying to do it, you know, in, in six degrees. Um, you could probably actually do it faster than that. Um, but, but I want to do six degrees because of course that's the famous um, uh, sort of uh, game that's being, that's been played with Kevin Bacon or the play that was written by John uh, Guar. Um, but uh, but yeah, so uh, so it is. It just brings us to again, you know, instead of that that twenty thousand feet sort of view of the entire structure, it brings us through on an anecdotal level, and you can start to see how people connect. And sometimes the people um, who connect you from one jump to the next jump um, are not actually in the same time as it'll be like someone later commenting on someone earlier. Or um, for one anecdote, Taiyan's flute appears, um, and it's not Taiyan, but his flute, um, but. Science flute has cultural capital, and that's why it's in the anecdote. It represents something to Sun Chuo, who wants cultural capital and wants to demonstrate his um, his mastery, his cultural competence, um, and fails to do so. But uh, but uh, that allows a huge jump from Taiyan to Sun Chuo, you know, going from the late Han to the Jin. Yeah. So yeah. So that that's kind of I guess the logic there, and and and, and I think that might you know I. I, I don't know how much more I can really say about it without getting to a lot of detail. 
Right. Yeah, I, I totally understand. And I was thinking as I was writing the question, I was thinking of, well, but, you know, we're talking about it, but you really have to see it. Because, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And um, yeah, the, you know, the everything, it's it's very, very beautifully laid out in the book. And, um, you know, I do think that for to for the entire, you know, set of details to be. Uh, even clearer, maybe one would need like an A3 type of paper or a, you know, like A0 or something. Um, it's, um, you, you, you know, you, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but still, I mean, you know. Yeah, I think, I think Harvard uh, Asia Center is going to put them up on their website so people can zoom in on it. Okay. Um, and what they'll see when they zoom in on it is just because I, 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 at this point, I was like, oh, I don't want to go back to, um, you know, uh, Adobe Illustrator and sort of clean everything up. You know, some of the names are overlaid on the other names. And the point is like, oh, this is good enough. And sort of, I feel like, you know, in scholarship and in life, at a certain point, you just have to say, okay, this is going to be good enough and I need to move on. Um, I, this will never be entirely perfect. Um, so if you do zoom on it, you'll see, you know, how um, sloppily I've laid out some of the, the, the labels. Um, but, um, you know, I hope that's a forgivable sort of uh, flaw. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, as uh, as we we're talking about, you know, um, all sorts of, um, you know, descriptions and visualizations and, you know, movements, um, that brings us to gossip. Mm. So, you know, chapter three on gossip and, and reputation. And, um, of course, the network paradigm is, is still at the core, but it slightly shifts, uh, I thought, its focus to map accounts of gossip and their structural role in the construction of reputation. And um, I was wondering whether we could talk a bit about these concepts and their organizing presence in Shishuo, especially in the case of uh, Huaxin, and uh, what is the relationship between all these foundational elements, you know, like network, gossip, reputation, you know, social engagements, and the literary aspect of, of the anecdotes, if possible. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And so you know, I chose Huashin actually because I want to use a slightly um, a less well-known figure. I mean, he's well-known in his time, but um, he's not someone that you would immediately think about when you're thinking about the Shishu Shinyu. Um, and yet he's such a prominent figure, especially in that first chapter, um, which is about sort of exemplary behavior, about, you know, how modeling um, the kind of behavior that, um, that I think, you know, one, I mean, again, you know, to use a very broad term, one might characterize as proper Confucian or sort of, again, this, um, you know, uh, a figure that, uh, that could be models for other people. And so, you know, for him to be the figure of gossip, I thought was interesting because, again, gossip doesn't, you know, you don't usually think about gossip in relationship to exemplary behavior um, or conduct like that. Um, and, and yet it's there. Um, so that's why I chose uh, Huashin um, for that first uh, section, but also because I think some of the anecdotes that deal with him are, are particularly interesting in how they, how they um, show um, inside and outside community talk, things like that. So to back up then again a little bit, um, you know, I think if uh, you think about, again, networks, um, you know, from the last question and from the last chapter as a structure of connections, um, uh, you know, what you see, at least when you look at the network visualization, is that um, it's it's kind of like super flat kind, uh, uh, figure, super flat visualization. It's horizontal. And it, and it horizontalizes, I think, these relationships, right, by sort of reducing them to a, like a 2D kind of uh, figure. And so... Um, the network 
model, um, at least when I was, I was thinking about this for this book, it's, it's horizontal and not vertical. Um, and vertical has been the way in which I, I thought about the last book, um, the book on Taizong, um, which I thought about as archaeological, uh, thinking about through how Taizong was interested in his poems of creating these, um, these, uh, these kind of deep structures where um, each almost it was, you know, annotating his poems was a pain because every, you know, couplet was like full of uh, allusions to earlier things because he wanted to demonstrate his cultural competence and, and his sort of, uh, and, and to use literature as a way of demonstrating a particular kind and model of, of um, cultural sovereignty. Um, and so that, for me was archaeological because I was digging my way through the anecdotes, trying to sort of find sources, trying to sort of go back and say, oh, so Taizong is, you know, he's got these like deep structures embedded in in, in the poems. Um, whereas the network is flat. Um, and so it's horizontal and it connects things. Um, you know, and of course there are there's this historical dimension which, you know, I think comes back when I did my network. But still, um, Within the anecdotes, it's, it is this kind of connection um, that is more of this horizontal move. So, so there's that aspect, you know, thinking about network, you know, in, in your question, and I think and about gossip. And gossip, I think, has this sort of again this kind of horizontal move. Um, it is um, it levels uh, certain kinds of of, of um, class differences. Um, and uh, and one thing that I I you know was in my mind and I couldn't figure out a way to put this into the book was um, when I did my when I did the gossip and anecdote book um, Scott Waugh, who was the uh, I want to say he was like the I can't remember the he's a historian of medieval Europe but he was the vice provost or something at UCLA at the time and he came and gave the uh, keynote speech at the welcoming speech at the beginning. Um, and he talked about how, like, in his role now as provost or vice provost or executive provost, whatever it was, um, he doesn't get to hear much gossip anymore. And, you know, that gossip is, again, this kind of interesting, I feel like it's communal, but it doesn't rise up all the way up the levels of the community. Because the higher up you are, the less gossip you have access to. Because gossip is often used by people, I think, you know, at the lower echelons of a community to kind of figure out, you know, they need it's a, it's a, a source of information to figure out, you know, what is allowable, you know, what is what you can do and what you can say. Um, now, um, here, um, gossip in the Huashin thing, you know, Huashin himself is not gossiping. He's a figure of gossip. So he's being seen, again, you know, not comparing him to Scott Wap, but he's being seen as the person who, you know, people are gossiping about because they're talking about him and they're trying to figure out, you know, and often what we see in these uh, uh, anecdotes um, at the very end is a line, something like, and all the age, um, you know, uh, agree that this was so, right? Uh, kind of in a confirming way in which morality then closes in and says that this is the proper way. And so there's an agreement um, or an acclamation by by the community. And so gossip in this way and around Washington in particular um, is this moral evaluating thing? Um, I think it is the community at large, and not you know Huashin. And again, the community at large is like that sort of flattens uh, lower echelon, you know, or people who are observing, you know, but not participating directly. Um, and so they're talking about them because they're trying to sort of 
police and understand, you know, what are the boundaries of morality? Um, what is allowable? And so um, his actions get evaluated by people who are observing him. And so there are also some interesting questions, you know, because some of the stories deal with things that people have no access to. Like, you know, how would you know that he did that, right? And and um, and within one household, this was the behavior, and within the other household, this was the behavior. And so how would you know that, right? So, you know, you start to imagine there are these households, of course, are porous, you know, um, servants gossip, you know, there are, and I don't talk about this in the chapter, but, but this is kind of in the background, you know, who is it that gossip? I think graduate students gossip. Um, I think, you know, um, assistant professors need to gossip because you need to sort of trade, uh, knowledge of what's going on. Um, and so uh, at a certain point, I think it becomes the, the amount of gossip, you know, it's just, there's no, not less of a need. So, there's that aspect. It's like social capital, um, and it's and it creates ranks. I think there's this kind of social differentiation that's established by these sort of networks of gossip. Um, but gossip often is, at least in these anecdotes, something that's done around the edges of whatever the action is um, by the sort of community that is making this kind of moral sort of judgment um, and confirming, um, you know, the the um, moral correctness of a given action. Reputation, though, I think, which is, you know, your other term here, um, that is the production, that is what comes as the result of gossip. Um, so reputation, I think about that as social ontology. It's, it's, and, and of course, in Chinese, you have this very nice Ming, um, your, you know, which is fame and name, you know, combined um, together. Um, but uh how you know so so you know people gossip about you and and as a result and it's always better to be gossiped about even if you're not if you're someone that people are making fun of like central in a lot of the anecdotes because at least you've been talked about <clears throat> and being talked about means that you have a reputation and if you have a reputation that means you have a standing within society um people who don't get talked about have no social ontology right and so um and so, you know, I think this cluster of terms was useful for me to sort of figure out what was going on in this world. Right. Yeah. I'm still, uh, I was caught on this idea of the social ontology and how that's actually important in, uh, you know, even in our own work of, you know, finding what, you know, the authors we write about, you know, what were they engaged in and who was talking about them and, you know, like even, you know, 20th century, you know, twenty beginning of the 21st, right, to kind of discover these these things, um, you know, it's still very, very important, I think. So, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, of course, with, you know, reputation comes praise and insult. <laughs> yes. And, you know, that's, uh, that's the... The, the focus of the next chapter, chapter four, uh, entitled On Performance, Praise and Insult. And uh, here we see this careful negotiation between uh, different types of compliments. And uh, the chapter expands on the politics of praise as we see them, of course, in the Shishua. So, you know, I was thinking, how are praise and insults performed in the text? And whether, you know, we could get some examples coming from the section entitled Theories of Insult. I found that very interesting, the theories of insult. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I've been interested in praise, at least, since uh, the Poetics of Sovereignty book on Taizong. Um, and, um, and again, this goes back to... Uh, I guess, you know, so much goes back to like what you do as a graduate student. I feel like those, there's, that's that moment, I think, in one's life where you're reading lots of different kinds of things and some things take seed right away and some things take time and they gradually sprout. And um, 
certainly the idea of praise, um, because I had been reading uh, Joel Feynman's Shakespeare's per- uh, Perjured Eye, which is one of the best books on lyric poetry that I've read. Um, it, it goes to the sonnets, and it talks about praise, and he has this really nice formulation that praise points here when it points there. And so the praiser is, you know, indirectly praising him or herself because um, it is it, it is the staking of, of again, of a social ontology. Um, and I think, you know, I think about the fraughtness of praise, right? Um, uh, it's really easy, I think, to be critical, especially in our, and I, I'm thinking about this a lot because, so I taught this, I'm, I've been teaching this, like, uh, uh, this first year uh, seminar, um, I'm in this, uh, there's a new curriculum that's been done at UVA, and, um, and it gives us some freedom in terms of what to teach. Um, and so I've been teaching a class in the ethics domain, um, and so there are four areas, ethics is one of them, and the class I taught was called Cats, Why We Love Them, and it's, it's about, um, and, you know, if you teach a class on cats, I thought, oh, I have to teach Cats by Tom Hooper, the movie, um, you know, which is a terrible, terrible movie. Right, um, and um, but I thought, you know, when am I ever going to get a chance to teach a class about cats? About uh, teach a class about cats. First of all, I'm never going to get that chance. And but but like again, no one's going to let me do that again after this. But um, but when am I ever going to get a chance to teach cats the movie? And you know, and teaching cats the movie is really interesting because it is such a terrible movie, and it's terrible in so many ways. Um, and it's hard to exactly pinpoint, you know. I think people have pinpointed exactly what's terrible about it, but it gets really technical. Um, but then it made me think a little bit about how easy it is to ding things, right, in our in our society. Um, and so many of YouTube video reviews of cats is are so over the top uh, in, about how bad it is because the pleasure is like again, it's kind of this like the the pleasure of a dumpster fire right and so like you know being and rubbernecking dumpster fires it's like you know that enjoyment that comes from that um praising on the other hand is is difficult i think because but when you praise something you are staking part of your reputation on your act you're saying that i find this praiseworthy and therefore you're lending that object right that person um some of your social capital um because if you're wrong then people are gonna be like wow you like coldplay you know it's like and you know and you know you don't want to be that right person you know you want to you, you want to find the most like you know obscure indie band and be like oh you haven't heard of you know x band and and so uh and so praise is kind of a fraught act um and yet praise is the main i think economy that we see within court culture um and certainly it's the main economy that we see um, in the Shishoshinyu, um, this kind of really interesting economy of how one sort of lends out social capital and how it circulates. And um, the person that praises often makes these kind of elaborate statements. And this is something that, again, goes back to the way in which I think Shishoshinyu has often been discussed, uh, especially in thinking about Qingtan, you know, pure conversation and things like that, and its connection to Shuanshua, uh, which, you know, I, I find all of this, you know, interesting, but, but kind of nebulous, because, you know, what I'm seeing, you know, at least as I understand Qingtan, and, you know, when I, when I talk about it in the, how I talk about it in the book, is that it's actually like multiple modes of conversation, much of which is really about the demonstration of cultural competence rather than about, um, about some particular philosophical, um, 
conviction or positionality. And so, um, so praising is this really interesting act, I think, for, for someone, but is a virtuosic act. And, um, and when you praise someone, you have to do it in the right language. You have, it's almost ritualistic. You have to, you have to find like really interesting and, and penetrating words. And often, you know, you have this interesting comparisons to the pine trees or to, to natural imagery. Um, and again, it's facility with language is a demonstration of cultural competence It's performance in this way. Right. And so as you lend someone cultural capital, you are raising your own cultural capital because you're establishing yourself as someone who has the uh, virtuosic skill and the competence to be able to speak um, publicly and to name something publicly and to do it aptly again, which comes back to the sort of aptness um, within uh, anecdotal sort of literature. Um, Insult, on the other hand, right? Um, I think insults are fun, and you know, I I do have, you know, I can I can point to a couple of the insults, uh, insult sort of anecdotes. Um, but you know, I gave, I gave a talk once on 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 this part of this book um, at University of Washington, um, you know, and I want to thank like uh, Zev Handel and uh, Wang Ping who invited me and hosted me. Um, but I have to say. Um, talking about these insults out loud and, and sort of reading them out loud. I mean, these are on the level of dad jokes. It's, it's, they're not that like insulting. And I remember Zen just being kind of disappointed. Like that's, you know, I understand why that's an insult, but you know, you know, is that the best that they can do? And so, you know, it's insult, but it's really subtle insult. And I think it reads better than it sounds. Um, and so, I mean, I, I'm happy to read one, but you'll see what I mean. It's, it's not, it's, it's, it's insulting, I'm sure. But, um, but it's, it's, uh, it's not going to be like um, like watching a YouTube review of cats, right? That's insulting, and so like I recommend that if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> but um, so this uh, this is a a story uh, that deals with um, two friends actually, um, though it's it's uh, the anecdote sort of frames it as as this kind of conflict and, and just like lack of friendship. But Wang Yan, um, defender in chief Wang Yan, would not associate with uh, you. Yui, yet Yui yud, and this is the word in the pronoun ching him, and would not stop. And ching is again in, as a pronoun. It's this um, very uh, uh, casual, informal you, right? And would stop. Wang said, "You, sir," and and again he's using jun, um, which is the formal you, should not do this. You said you, and using ching again, may feel free to you, sir, me. That's using jun, and I will feel free to you, ching you using ching twice, yeah, I'll ching ching, right? I'll free, feel free to use my method and you ching may feel free to use your method. And again, he uses ching like three times in that sentence, right? Um, so, um, you know, this is, there's a whole set of like these pronoun um, insult things where, where, you know, someone who is um, really just violating social decorum by, by assuming familiarity with who they're speaking to and using the more familiar tone because that establishes, I think, a social hierarchy, right? So someone who, you know, really should not be claiming that um, is going to claim that. And so, yeah, so you can see, I mean, it's insulting, but I mean, is this like the worst thing you've ever heard? Probably not, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, um, you know, um, like oh you know then I think about the the review of um in the New York Times I can't remember this came back out in like the two thousand I think it was the beginning of this kind of like insulting review it was a review of um, Guy Fieri's 
restaurant in Times Square. It was such a masterful kind of takedown. Like, you know, people were like, you know, no, normally restaurant reviews from New York Times do not take off virally, but this one did, right? Um, and, and so <laughs> that's insulting, right? Um, this is like, you know, fairly, you know, oh, I see, this is kind of a social decorum issue. Um, but this is a level of insult that I think we typically see in the Shisho. Um, but again, I think it's interesting partly because it, it shows, I think, the ways in which um, within a particular social network, um, assumed standards and behaviors and etiquettes um, are, um, are and can be skillfully violated. Um, and so I think it's, it's that sort of that skillful playfulness that, that makes it worth talking about. Right. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, it is indeed very, very skillful um, for, yeah, I guess for, for our <laughs> day and age, it's, it's not, it doesn't provide the, you know, the scratch to the itch. But no. <laughs> I know, and I wanted to, like, I was like, oh, this is, you know, after, because you promised so much by talking about insult, and then you're like, this is it, you know. <laughs> 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 I think it was a Sam Sifton, I, I want to say, was the critic. Um, you know, again, you know, that, you know, I, I feel like as a culture, we have developed so much more in terms of insult than, than what was available to the world of Shishoshinu. Like, this is where insult was, and we are here now with insult. And so, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I won't, I won't dwell too much on it, but because there's a lot to say, but still, um, you know, and I'll, I'll just move on with the, with the question on, on the next chapter, which, you know, might, might actually provide more con- context, right, for understanding uh, better, you know, the level of, of praise and insult, right, in the chapter four. But uh, chapter five on competence and composure is closely related to, um, you know, the previous as well. But um, it focuses on the casual aspect of the performance, uh, which can be a performance in itself. uh, Right. And specifically the character's competence and composure. And um, how are these traits interwoven and interweaving the anecdotes in the Shishu? Yeah. So, um the main figure that I talk about in this chapter is Xia'an, and I think Xia'an, um, you know, I, one of the, I did a statistical, um, you know, again, using particular parameters, but, you know, I, I did a sort of um, analysis of how often he appears in the Shisho, and he's in 10% of the anecdotes, uh, slightly more than 10%, so he's actually the most frequent figure in, in the Shisho. Um, and uh, as we're moving through historically in time, you know, we see certain, and this is something that um, I meant to mention before, but I, I think about this as typological figurations. Um, we have figures that, that sort of represent precursors to like what's going to be fulfilled. And I use typology in this way that is um, kind of part of biblical hermeneutics, but um you know, and so in biblical hermeneutics, typology is like, you know, a particular figure in the Old Testament, right, is the, is a typologic, is going to be fulfilled later on typologically by, like, say, Jesus Christ, right, in the, in the New Testament. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing like this, these kind of matches between figures that have nothing to do with one another, really. But again, within this sort of narrative logic, right, um, they, 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 perform this kind of typological figuration. And so I, I see that, you know, in the Shishua, um, there's certain figures like Shi Kang um, and then Wang Dao, and then in the end, Xie An, who are all sort of typologically linked because they represent a certain kind of cultural competence. And 
part of the competence um, that, especially as we see it move through into the Eastern Jin, is is this ability to maintain composure under stress. Um, and so, you know, there's all sorts of competence. There's the kind of competence that allows you to compose poems on demand, um, but there's also the kind of competence that allows you to understand how to refrain from action, how to refrain from emotion, how to hold these things within you. Um, and Sha'an is this figure. And so the most famous, probably, you know, example of this um, is um, the story of Sha'an playing encirclement chess, right? Um, and so he's playing encirclement chess with someone who, when suddenly a messenger arrived from Sheshren, who was at Huai River, She glanced through the letter with, and without a word, leisurely turned back to the chessboard. When his guest asked whether the news from Huai River was good or bad, he replied, the boys have crushed the thug. In expression and comportment, he acted no differently than usual. Right. And I think about this a lot because, you know, this, you know, he's, uh, while he's entertaining guests and he's playing chess, um, you know, he knows that his um, nephews are, his nephew and, um, is it his nephew and uh, someone else, uh, but they're, um, his nephew and his younger brother are, are waging war um, and their, their lives are in danger. And, um, and, you know, there, and this is uh, the uh, Battle of Fei River with uh, Fu Zhen. Um, so a very famous battle um, in terms of uh, Jin history. Um, and yet he's able to sort of like maintain this complete equilibrium and behave as a host should behave, right? And only when someone asks him about it. And of course, you have to be asked about this. You have to, there has to be a break because otherwise, you know, if it's just a story about Sha'an playing chess and he knows that this is other battles happening and at the end, he just, you know, no one asks him, right? Then he just played chess, right? There's no story there. But um, so someone has to ask him to, so that he can sort of, revealed that he was holding within right this competence and this composure um and this is of course a story i think about a lot partly because as uh someone who's the father of a of a of a teenage boy who plays tennis and tennis is not the same thing as as waging war with fujian and i want to acknowledge that um but um in tennis you know often as a parent you're watching your child play and you're stressed out it's like the worst thing i hate watching my son play tennis even though he's he enjoys competing he's good at it he doesn't mind losing he gets stuff out of losing um but i really hate especially when um you know the kid he's playing against is cheating and you can't say anything there's a whole etiquette about this so you're supposed to be shit on at that moment, sort of watching someone, you know, cheat against your kid, making bad calls, and you're supposed to maintain composure and not get outraged. So I think about this mainly because I was thrown out of a tournament once because I got into a fight with um, my son's my son's opponent's father. <laughs> so, so like I was not shown that moment. I did not show the kind of cultural confidence that you're supposed to show at tennis matches. Um, I was thrown out. My wife was attacking me, saying, like, "Do not fight this guy in the parking lot." And I was like, "I'm not going to fight this guy." I'm just, you know, so I was like, you know, it's like, I, I, you know, um, yeah. That that was probably the lowest moment of of my sort of parenting. Anyway, yeah. So, but that is, you know, I think about Shan as the opposite of that, and then so Shan is this exemplary figure who's able to, um, you know, and and I think that sort of exemplification of 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 composure is really what much of the Shishra is actually interested in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I was just trying to uh, find a way to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I would have 
have done the same thing and I cannot <laughs> maintain composure <laughs> against anger. So. Yeah, no, I spent I spent the next forty minutes as as he went on to uh, lose this tennis match against this kid who's cheating, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just the kid was cheating. So my son had like beaten the kid's younger brother in in the earlier match, and that kid was also cheating. Mm-hmm. And then the younger brother was then signaling and and trying to coach his older brother oh, from the sidelines, oh, and I was like, "This is outrageous!" Yeah. And so I spent the like next forty minutes driving around in circles because I needed to do something. <laughs> wasn't allowed anywhere near the tournament <laughs> yeah, yeah no i could yeah i i think you actually had some composure to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah so yeah it's uh no it's it's hard yeah and uh <laughs> yes i actually i yeah i got into fights about cats about like no my cat <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> you know, but yes, there is a ritual that you know we we and composure that we have to to follow. <laughs> um, right, um, but yes, uh, yeah, Xian had the um, you know was very um, you know um, composed and uh, very apt there, right? Mm, yes, and, right. Um, yeah, and uh, but absolutely yes. I think the the two um, right chapter four and chapter five do come together to to complement uh, each other specifically right in this sequence. Uh, but of course, the the entire uh, you know um, the entire book, of course, it's it comes together very 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 well. And you know now we get to to uh, rituals in mourning, and um, you know we here we see the practice of mourning and its connections, uh, you know, with with all the other things that we we talked about. But also the ways in which the characters imagine uh, image right is built through this lens of the ritual, and here I'm curious to know how the anecdotes intervene in or are in dialogue with other texts on mourning and rituals while uh, proposing a method of reading culture as well as its participants. Yeah, thanks. And so um, one of the things that I was really struck by, you know, in reading through the show was just how much deals with morning rituals. And it's not just in the chapter on morning. There's a whole chapter on morning. But but there are anecdotes that deal with morning and how one behaves in morning uh, throughout the whole collection. And so that, you know, I, I was thinking about this in relationship to... Um, what we normally see in ritual texts that deal with mourning, you know, more like the Liji or other texts from earlier periods that deal with mourning and how the Shishra is reimagining those arguments. And so this is the, I mean, there in the second half of the book, I start to think about how um, the Shishra's anecdotes are creating and reimagining norms uh, within culture, um, you know, whether we're talking about composure um, or we're talking about mourning. And uh, and here, I, I think one thing to just for highlight is that um, anecdotes are, again, like thought experiments. And I mentioned thought experiments before, but they're ways of sort of imagining other norms or responding to norms and and challenging them, but not directly, but rather by exemplifying a behavior and then praising that behavior, right? As mm-hmm. sort of a, in, in response to what you normally think the ritual structure should be. So they're not direct arguments against ritual prescriptions, but they reimagine ritual prescriptions 
in other ways. And this is kind of a world-making aspect to it. Um, and I think about, you know, lyric poems are world-making in the same way. But the anecdote, by sort of foregrounding this one moment and saying this one set of behaviors, which we may think of as eccentric, actually is more ritually correct than we might imagine um, as a response, I think, to especially to uh, particular classical norms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, the example you start with between the two brothers who uh, steal some ale from their father and then, you know, the the younger one, I think, says, well, but, you know, what's the point for ritual if I'm stealing? I mean, you know. Yes, right. So that's, um, yeah, that was a very, um, very, you know, good way into into talking about uh, the the examples, but also the, you know, all these connections, I thought. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and one of the things, I guess, was um, I was uh, in thinking through this chapter, I was um, sort of responding to arguments that, that Michael J. Pewitt had made about sincerity and ritual um, in, in this really interesting book that he co-authored with, with three other sort of people um, on thinking about uh, how we have very modern, so sincerity is a very modern kind of uh, value that we have. Um, whereas in earlier classical periods, um, it's much more about how ritual shapes us and how you know we become who we are through these sort of external pressures. And there's kind of a Shunzian sort of way. Um, but one thing I think you see in the Shishra is actually sort of a value placed on a certain kind of sincerity. And that sincerity is, of course, performative. And I you know, want to sort of acknowledge that you know, these are actions undertaken with this almost imagined public in mind. So, um, you know, how sincere are they? Well, it's probably not like this private modern sincerity that we think about to be sincere to oneself. It's sincerity within this kind of public space. Um, but I think it is a kind of sincerity as opposed to this, just a sort of ritual imposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I think it, it fits very well in there as well. And, uh, you know, but also, um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make the transition towards the conclusion here. But yes, yes. <laughs> you know, um, so the the view from across the river, right? The title for the conclusions brings in the this idea of of nostalgia for a great past, and I think there's, you know, it's under it's an underlying concept, right? When we're talking about mourning and rituals, but also sincerity and reinterpretation of it, right? With with a yeah. different kind of point of view, so. You know, I'm. I was actually interested to to know more about how uh, is nostalgia articulating the the performances of praise and insults and you know gossip and, and the the social network as well. Like, does it have a role or not that much? Yeah. So you know, let me come at, come at that question um, this way. Um, so um, you know, we like, we talked a little bit about typology. I think in part of the earlier conversation, and thinking about the ways in which we see certain actions repeated across the space of the Shishra. Um And you know, with typology, you know, especially in this sort of biblical hermeneutical sort of model you're looking for fulfillment. So there's this kind of this teleological logic, I think, uh, to the typological move of reading. Um, here, I, you know, I think there's a kind of an opposite move. And what this chapter is suggesting is, is another way of thinking about the typological logic that we, that I subscribe to in parts of this, you know, find useful as a way of getting into it. Um, which is a sort of retrospective model. Um, and so, you know, as opposed to the typological, what we often see, especially as we move into the Eastern Jin, once we go cross the Yangtze River, right? Um, and once we have that mass immigration of elites, um, and they're, they are settler colonialists, right? They're settling into a space and a, a, a land that's, that's occupied already, um, and they're reestablishing and reclaiming that as the Jin. Um, so, uh, 
they're often looking back and thinking back uh, to older moments, um, moments that they talk about. And so when we're thinking about, I guess, about nostalgia is, you know, crossing that river, losing your homeland, right, in the fifth... Uh, and, um, and by the time this collection, the Shijuok, is, is put together, right, we think, right, again, from what we know, um, in the fifth century, you know, these stories are what is left, right, of, of that earlier culture. And that culture includes... Also, the moment in which you lose the the homeland, um, the north, what's north of the river, and so you know, I th- I think about this chapter and as a way of, in terms of summing up and trying to sort of make an argument about, um, you know, why the Shishu Shinyu, right? Um, you know, why does this exist at all? That telling and collecting are related activities, um, and so you know, you tell stories of the past to remind yourself where you're from, um, and you collect um, and. And what we see in some of these like Eastern Jin, especially these later Eastern Jin stories, is the telling of stories and reminding yourself, oh, you know, what life was like across the river, or when we first crossed the river, what that was like, and often looking across the river and mourning or sort of feeling um, nostalgia for what was lost. Um, but then in the fifth century, when Liu Yiqing is, is, you know, again, we think traditionally ascribed, attributed to, this collection together, right? Um, there's a there's a this secondary moment of nostalgia, right? It's looking back from the Liu Song to the Jin and sort of collecting and bringing this together. So you know you have again these stories that represent um, this past uh, um, and especially this high point of the Eastern Jin, this sort of the great heroes like Wang Dao and Xia'an, um, yeah, and remembering. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know I. I... I really would like to ask way more on this, but I think we've already taken a lot. Yes, we're getting close to time. Yep. <laughs> so I was just wondering uh, whether you could tell us more about your current projects. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, this. I keep thinking that you know, once I finish like you know my second book, I'm just going to spend my time playing tennis. But that's probably not what I'm going to do. I keep like getting involved in other kinds of projects, and so um, one other book that's actually coming out this year is a co-edited volume with a. Uh, Anatoly Detweiler, uh, Sh- uh, Liu, um, uh Christopher Nugent, and Bruce Rusk. It's called uh, Literary Information in China, a History, and it's being published by Columbia. And so that's got, I forget, it's like 56 chapters, um, but it really looks at, it provides a literary history um, from the beginning, from beginning to the end of the literary tradition, thinking about the ways in which Literary texts have been collected, stored, encoded, um, organized. Um, so it looks at things from the level of the graph, um, the level of the word, then to the level of the document and to the level of the collection. So it includes chapters on everything from how does the graph work? What is the information encoded in the graph? Like, and Zev Handel writes a very nice set of essays on, on, on that and also on early dictionaries um, to things like, yeah, what is, how is the lexicon sort of put together or how's an anthology put together? What's the logic of the anthology? And it looks at different kinds of anthologies. And then on the other end of that, things like what is a library? What is a mu- literary museum? Um, what is a database? And so that is coming out this spring. Um, and then after that, I have a couple of different projects. I have um, uh, the book on ghosts that I thought about writing earlier. Um, I'm coming back to it, and I'm trying my best to make that something that's not as, I think, sinologically, philologically kind of bound. I would like to do something that's a little bit more, I don't know, um, theoretical, I guess. Um, 
and thinking about so i mean the chinese tradition is one of the very few uh, one the few the one that i know of in which um ghosts can be ghosts are treated as historical authors of poems and so uh so I, I'm, I'm interested in what that says about lyric poetry about ghosts about authorship itself about um textuality um i think it opens up a series of really interesting theoretical questions um and then i've got a couple of other sort of projects that were mulling, um, one on algorithmic reading, thinking about ways in which things like rhyme, meter, um, couplet length, um, those things can be thought of as these parameters that sort of generate poetic utterance. And, and this is kind of, this, this project is coming out of the information stuff, a little bit out of the DH stuff I've done. Um, and it's going to be comparative. Um, I'm looking, I'm working with people uh, in German and English and maybe in French thinking about um, the ways in which um, poems and poetic texts are generated through rules. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, I have a few things, I think, um, on the horizon. But. Well, I mean, they're super fascinating. And, you know, I mean, they do take time and, you know, they take <laughs> you away from tennis. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it's, it's actually very, very exciting and very cool to, to hear that these projects are in the works. And, you know, that one, the, 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 the collection that it's coming out this spring, it's, it's almost ready, right? It's, yes. uh, so, you know, I'm looking forward to, to reading all of that and, you know, to more interviews uh, for this <laughs> network. So thank you so much for today, and uh, you know, um, good luck with uh, with AS and you know, with all the work. Yes, thank you for having me. Absolutely, thank you. That was fun.